Ben Breer is reading the scripture for us this morning. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Today's reading comes from Amos, the second chapter, verses 13 through the third chapter, verses 8. Behold, I'll press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the, fa the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has, nothing, if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up when the ground, from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy the word of the Lord? We're in a season in which we're considering the book of Amos. Amos is an Old Testament minor prophet. He is a shepherd, a nobody from the southern kingdom of Judah that God sent to essentially be his prosecuting attorney against the northern kingdom of Israel. To understand the book of Amos, there are two important things to just keep in mind as we're throughout the entire series. One is that Amos is a nobody, a poor shepherd from another kingdom coming to Israel. And two is that Israel is affluent. It's a season in which Israel was enjoying unparalleled military success and as a result of that unparalleled wealth, the only time that Israel is doing better is under the reigns of David and Solomon. So it's a time in which they're rich, and it's a time in which they moved away from God. And here comes Amos to convict them of their sin. Now as we uh, begin to think about Amos this morning, I'd like you to reflect a little bit on an ad campaign that just rolled out for the new Toyota Camry. Now, that a new Toyota Camry is coming out is hardly anything new, but the ad campaign has taken a new tack in terms of the history of advertising, in which they've, one advertising company has actually hired subsidiary advertising agencies to target, target different ethnicities within the nation. So there's a Hispanic Toyota Camry ad, there's an Anglo or mainstream Toyota ad, there's an Asian American Toyota Camry ad, so on and so forth. So... Just to give you a feel for them, the African-American Toyota Camry ad features uh, some strong hip-hop music and uh, images of a peacock, and the notion is kind of strutting your stuff. You will stand out if you drive a Toyota Camry. The Asian-American ad campaign is an Asian father picking up his Asian son after baseball practice, and they share an emotional moment. 
So if you buy a Camry, it will help your emotionally unavailable Asian-American father to connect to the children. <laughs> the Hispanic uh, ad campaign is a Latino man who's driving, pretty scenic drive, having a good time, and on Bluetooth, his mother calls. And so he debates for a moment, and then he declines the call. And so the notion is you can be rebellious. You can kind of live your own life if you have a Toyota Camry. Um, and then the mainstream one shows uh, an older man and a woman and a kid kind of standing and waiting and biding the time. And then their counterparts are all having a really good time driving and listening to Queen. And I'm actually not sure what that one is supposed to communicate. Uh, it must be so savvy that I'm the target, so I don't know. I apparently want to listen to Queen and not pick up my children on time and drive around. Something of that nature. Anyway. The point is, uh, think about just for a moment, the billions of dollars being spent in advertising for advertisers who do just about better than anybody seek to know your heart, seek to understand the affections of your heart, because it's their job to make your heart fall in love with what they would like to sell to you. And so they do this very, uh, very well. Now, I'd like to come back to that ad in a little bit, but right now, it's sufficient to point out that when God comes to Israel or when God comes to you, no one knows your heart better than God does. And God comes to Israel and has a revelation to give them through his prophet Amos, and that revelation's not pretty. It's not, um, it's not something that's encouraging, but it's something that if it's not heeded, ends in destruction. And it's par very parallel to the revelation that we receive, as we'll see. And the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to that revelation? So what Amos is going to do, it's actually quite interesting. He, um, he takes a really different tack than some of the other prophets in some ways. As you enter into chapter 3, he gets super simple. Uh, it appears that Israel is just not listening, is just not getting it, or doesn't believe it. And so Amos, it's almost, you can almost hear him saying in the background, okay, I'm going to talk to you like a four-year-old. I'm going to break this down for you really simple. And that's just what he does. He um, uses some examples from general, the general world, the general ancient world. And he says, uh, you need to be a, a people who looks back and understands the present. You need to be a people who understands the present and can look to the future. And as a result of those two observations, uh, you'll be a people who have the opportunity to change. Okay? So uh, we're going to talk about looking back and then looking forward and then making change. What do I mean when I talk about uh, looking back? Well, God begins by expressing his love, reminding Israel of his love for them. If you look at 3 uh, verse 1, God uh, spes speaks to the people of Israel, saying, um, the whole, describing them as the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So he reminds them not only that he's rescued them, but he reminds them that, he, uh, that they are his family. Israel is the family of God, a family that he's established. He goes on even more so to describe that relationship as one of intense intimacy. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Right? Now, to know someone in an Old Testament sense describes great intimacy. Uh, it, it, uh, when Abraham knew Sarah, the result was a child. Right? This is the same word and is communicating an intense level of intimacy that God has chosen and set apart Israel as his special people, as his uh, special bride of all the families of the earth. They are his. 
God has chosen them in love, but God never chooses in love without assigning purpose. Purpose is absolutely essential because God wouldn't actually love you if he left you where you were in a sinful and broken world. Right? To call you in love is to call you to purpose, to move you in a certain direction. That was certainly the case with Israel. And to, deg- to the degree that they have failed to move in that direction means that God cannot just say nothing or do nothing. That wouldn't be love. Right? You as a parent or had a parent or can imagine a good parent would not allow their child to move in any direction that they wanted. You hold them accountable. You enter yourself to exercise discipline if the need arises. And the need has certainly arisen with Israel, which is why as soon as God says, uh, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. We see that a very real part of our relationship with God is that when we decide to go in our own direction, discipline, punishment, judgment may very well be the result. This is what is coming against Israel and being announced. Now, we can make the uh, assumption or the conclusion uh, that Israel did not believe Amos or that they didn't understand him or didn't take him seriously because from this point forward, Amos will begin to argue in the simple way that I talked about, essentially saying when you see certain realities in the world, right, you should assume that something has preceded that reality. Now, that may seem abstract and a little bit odd, but if you look with me, it will become very obvious. Look at verse 3. Do not two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. What is Amos saying? He's saying, listen, if you see two people walking down the road together, the presumption is they've agreed to meet and to go on a journey together. It's not happenstance. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, a lion does not roar to announce to his prey his location. He roars to announce his kill. Uh, The same for the young lion in the next clause. If you go down to verse 5, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? If you see a bird that's caught in a snare, you realize someone has set the trap. That's an obvious presumption. And then the second part of verse 5, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? If you see a snare that has been triggered, well, then an animal has been in, or if you see a snare snare that's been triggered, the assumption is that somebody put the snare there to catch an animal. So in every case, what Amos is pointing out, if you see a certain reality, two people walking together, a lion roaring, then you assume the people have arranged it. The lion has, has his prey, right? It's, a, it's a, just a, um, you would assume, you would draw the conclusion that something has existed beforehand and has been a reality for this to be the case. So what is Amos's point? Amos's point is that uh, he's saying, I am the prophet who stands at the gates of Israel. This is the reality that is before you. So what is the presumption for what has come before? If we look back, If you have a prophet at your gates announcing judgment, and if you look back, what will have to be true? Well, what will have to be true is that you've lived in unrepentant sin. That's how you get a prophet showing up at the gates of your city, issuing God's judgment. Now, we don't live in the age of prophets. You don't have somebody who might show up at your door exercising this kind of utterance. But we do live in the age, the improved age, in which we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. In fact, Paul speaks 
uh, in this exact way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So what we have here in the picture of Amos is uh, the mouthpiece of God showing up to Israel, ready to convict, saying, if I am here standing at your gates, the reality must be that you've been living in sin. And if we want to understand this from our perspective, living on this side of the cross and this side of Pentecost, we need to talk about the spirit that comes upon you and convicts you, paints before you your sin, and then your decision to look back and say, have I been living in unrepentant sin to get to this point? Is that what has caused me to find myself at this place? I'll tell you about a woman named Sean who bounced around a bit but did grow up in Texas. And Sean's parents were divorced at the age of 13. And uh, as a result of that divorce, Sean was left very much adrift and she turned very much to boys for her sense of identity. And she mistook physical intimacy for a sense of love and compassion, something that would fill her up. This uh, was the story of her life as she moved forward and eventually culminated, culminated in her being, uh, arriving at the door of an abortion clinic when she was 17. And that would repeat itself just a few years later during her sophomore year of college. She was so racked with guilt and shame over the decisions that she had made that she turned to a life of drinking and binging, binging and purging to cover that guilt. And lived in this place, but did eventually get married. And as she got married, she went back and forth between, I want to have a child. No, I don't want to have a child. I aspire to have a child. No, I'm not worthy to have a child. Eventually, though, she and her husband did desire to have kids and begin to try to have kids, but have a great deal of difficulty conceiving. So what Sean says is, I am being punished. Right? I am receiving punishment for the sin in which I have engaged this is the story of my life. This is what I deserve. Now, my point in telling you this story is not necessarily to say that Sean was, was being punished. I think punishment or judgment is uh, a phraseology that sometimes leads us in the wrong direction. And we must be reminded that God's discipline, at least certainly on this side of the cross, is always meant to invite our repentance. So let's just say for the moment, we don't presume to know what God is doing. Uh, it's way beyond our pay grade, and I personally get very frustrated with people who think that they can assign meaning to events in life as if they were God and knew the narrative that he was writing. That is not my suggestion to you. But in the life of Sean, perhaps God provides this frustration for her to begin to do business with her very broken story. Right? That there, let's say that certainly, at the very least, there's conviction from the Holy Spirit as a result of the decisions that she has made in the past and the decisions she continues to make to cover up the brokenness of, of those decisions. She lived in a place where, uh, by looking back, she did, she could see, she could identify her sin, she felt that conviction, and in that place, the question becomes, well, in which direction do you turn? If you're a believer, you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know that the Spirit will come upon you and will challenge you and say, you, have, you are not doing the right thing, you are not thinking the right way, you have alienated someone, you are alienated from someone, 
whatever it may be, you know that the Spirit comes upon you and you feel this tension, which can either lead in a direction to try to alleviate the tension. In Sean's case, she turns to drinking and binging and purging. Or it can lead to a turn toward God in repentance, into a healing of that relationship. When we feel the conviction of the Spirit, it is a fork in the road, as it was for Israel when Amos shows up. Israel, will you double down and pursue your foolishness away from God, or will you repent and turn towards God in the midst of this conviction? Well, Amos pivots a little bit in verse 6. He does so very briefly. Up to this point, he's been using examples that cause someone to say, oh, if this is the case now in this reality, what must be true before it? In verse 6, he says, if this is true now, what's going to be true in the future? And so if you look at verse 6, he writes, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Okay, Amos is just switching time frames. He says, if a trumpet of a foreign army is blown out the, outside the gates of the city, then what is the logical conclusion of the people? They're afraid. We're about to be invaded. We better grab our swords and our bows because it, we're in trouble. Amos is saying, listen, a prophet stands at the gates of your city announcing the true words of God. You better be afraid because they're not good words. The words that are in, meant to encourage uh, your repentance. And so if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit... Are you willing to look down the road and say, what might result if I don't repent? For Israel's decision not to repent, it will be destruction. For you, it may be more severe discipline from the Lord. If he loves you, he's not going to continue to let you move in any direction that you want. And this is the story of Sean, right? She feels tremendous guilt and shame for the decisions that she had made in the past, but tries to cover up that guilt and that shame with uh, the drinking and the binging and the purging. Well, eventually, Sean gets pregnant. But when she goes in to have her first, or whatever, sonogram, the doctors say, well, there's, you show this and this marker, it's somewhat likely that your baby will have Down syndrome. Do you want to carry on with the pregnancy? And so Sean is again faced with this enormous dilemma, echoing her past, right, and placing her in a, a position of making a decision. Do I move toward God or do I move away from him in foolishness? Well, thankfully, Sean decided to have the baby, goes on to have another child, but really has not done business with God. Still continues to, to bear the guilt, and when the Spirit convicts and urges her to true repentance, she drinks more and more. And she describes uh, her nights of the infant years and toddler years as a, uh, a, a regularly evening-induced haze of reading bedtime stories and putting the children to sleep and then falling to sleep herself or putting herself to sleep in the midst of that. Sean, even in that... It's, again, it's so difficult even to... To take Amos and to apply it today because we cannot presume that we know the purposes of God. But again, when this prognosis comes potentially, maybe this child will be ill. Maybe this child will not be as healthy as you desire it to be. It's a reckoning for her. Do I, do I move toward a God who would potentially allow this to happen or do I move away from a God who I just don't think is safe or good? 
It's the same question that's presented to Israel when Amos shows up at her doorstep. Which direction will they move in? Now, when we face this, this question, this option, right, which direction to, to move in, we realize that the discipline of the Lord provides opportunity for change. And as we see that, we see God actually letting us know what Israel's decision is going to be. Uh, look with me at chapter 2, uh, verse 13. God announces his judgment in verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. But notice what the response of Israel will be, beginning in verse 14. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that, in that day, declares the Lord. What is Israel going to do as they are faced with uh, that option? It shows you God's telling everyone and telling us today that what Israel is going to do is rely on their own strength. An army is coming against Israel that is the very hand of God in judgment against their sin. And what Israel has a fork in the road. They could repent at Amos' words and turn towards God, or they could rely on their own strength, which is what's being described here. They will pick up their bow. They will rely on their mighty warriors. They will rely on the speed of their horse. They think we can stand against what is coming against us because we feel very strong. We've been very successful of late. We're quite enjoying our affluence. So no thanks, God. We're not going to move toward you we're going to continue to sit uh, where we are and rely on that which we think brings us salvation and strength and peace. What would Amos sound like if you were writing today? Right? As you find yourself in a place where you feel the conviction of the Spirit and there's a fork in the road and you say, I can turn toward God or I can turn toward these things that I've been turning to and I think will save me. God would say to you this morning that those images on the screen that you should not be looking at, that you're shopping that is irresponsible, that your relationships that are emotionally inappropriate with members of the opposite sex, that the infinite and unending house projects in which you engage in, right? God would say these will not save you. At the end of the day, you will run naked from the city. Because only by turning to me and repenting of the sin of which I am convicting you do you experience life. And I come against you, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And you can repent or you can turn toward these things that do not bring life. Sean drove herself to a place of just despair. Right, An alcoholic trying to raise two little kids, racked with the guilt and shame of her past, she decides to get back into church and begins again to hear the gospel preached over and over again and to understand that if this is true, that God has loved her to such an extent that he has died on the cross for her, then she is not being held accountable for those decisions that she's made in the past, that there is forgiveness as she repents for those decisions. And if there's forgiveness for that, there's freedom. And she begins to move into that and live in it and now indeed serves as a counselor in Austin to women struggling through similar things. 
Moving toward God and repentance is always freedom in life. Moving towards the things that get you through life, right, that the Spirit convicts you about, is always moving toward death. I know many of you know this, and many of us would echo with Paul that I do the thing I don't want to do. I agree with everything you said, Ryan, but I know that before the week is out, I will find myself right back doing what I have been doing. And in this, remember that you, of all the families of the earth, are most loved. Not most hated, or not the people that God most likes to beat up on, but most loved. I really, the world of advertising fascinates me. This Toyota campaign fascinates me particularly, uh, in part because you can see so clearly Toyota is essentially saying, I, we will tell you the story that you want to tell yourself. We will tell you the story that you desire to be true, and we are going to try to make you believe that if you buy a Camry, that story will come true. Does Toyota love you? Does Toyota desire your best and to see you grow in maturity and holiness? Of course not. Toyota loves your dollars, uh, just like every other corporation does. But God loves you with the passion of a father. And it's here that the author of Hebrews describes it this way. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and who respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but the discipline, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is Amos at your door? Does the Spirit come upon you in conviction? Pause as you are so eager to run to the things that you think alleviate the pain of that affliction and that discipline. Pause and just remember that God has loved you to the extent of breaking his son's body and shedding his blood. He desires your good and your benefit and would see you made new. In the midst of your reflection, repent and remember that God is the one who loves you uniquely among all the families of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great and profound love for us. Thank you for that it is your love that in fact makes us new. Would you please forgive us for the ways in which we we run away from you in foolishness. And even when you would come to us in discipline, like Israel, we would say, not a big deal, we can handle it. Gosh, our foolishness knows no end. Would you instead help us to be wise and in your spirit to find life and to repent and to be made new? And with Paul, we cry out that even when we recognize this rationally, uh, but find it so hard to live it out, uh, would, you, would you meet us that we might declare that all things are made new and good in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would encourage us and nourish us at this table this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.